We still need to plan notwithstanding uncertainty and complexity. But can we make decisions based on relevant futures forecasts and still remain agile and able to learn from what unexpectedly emerges? How is the quality of dialogue fundamental to creating a shared sense of purpose and to build futures literacy more broadly? What I'm doing these days is allow people to uncover their assumptions and to also get to see the assumptions that others hold. We want to understand what our own assumptions are and what the assumptions of the others are. And we also understand the limitations of yep. those assumptions. We understand that maybe they just describe the box in which we're thinking. <laughs> And then, aha, okay, so that's the box and that's the frame through which I look at the topic or the future of the topic of work or learning or whatever the topic might be. And often enough that people are ready to say, okay, maybe that box is too narrow. Maybe the frame is too conventional, too standard. Why don't we at least play around with a different set of assumptions, a different frame? and see what happens, see whether this broadens our perspective, whether this allows us to see different things that we didn't see before. And especially if we do it together with others, we inspire yeah. each other and say, oh, let's try this, let's try that, and play, just play around with it. That is my guest today, Stefan Bergheim. Stefan is a designer and facilitator of Futures Literacy Laboratories for companies, academia and governments to enable their partners to better use the diversity of futures to create sustainable success. Welcome to FuturePod, Stefan. Thank you. Great to be here. An honour. A privilege for me to chat. So the first question, Stefan, the one that our listeners tell us they enjoy is the story question. So what is the Stefan Bergheim story? How did you become a member of the Futures and Foresight community? Maybe I start when I began to study economics in the late 80s and early 90s. And why did I do that? Because I thought it was fascinating to see economists play with their models and predict <laughs> the future. So you raise interest rates as a central bank or you raise government spending as a government and then the economy reacts and you can make a forecast from that. So I found Great. that fascinating. So I studied that and I, I read the Economist newspaper and there were all those bank economists in there who said next year's GDP growth is going to be so and I thought that was fascinating and that's also the route that I took initially then I joined Merrill Lynch and JP Morgan and worked as a banking economist there and we created loads of forecasts others were creating the forecast for the exchange rates which I found super difficult but I was partly in charge for forecasting inflation rates, GP growth rates for Germany and the Eurozone later on, and sometimes central bank interest rates. And I traveled the world and explained to people what the future is going to hold and how it's going to play out and where they should be investing, maybe what the strategies to go. It was a great fun time. 
but it was partly also entertainment value that we created because it went through the Asian crisis in the late <laughs> 90s. It blew apart all our forecasts. Yeah. And then there was a dot-com crisis. I was at Merrill Lynch at the time. We were big players on the, both the equity and the fixed income markets. And everything went upside down in this phase. So shocks, disruptions, one after the other made me a lot more humble in my perceived ability <laughs> to predict the future. And then I moved over to Deutsche Bank and we had a, a team there that's called Macro Trends. So still the economics department and trend research. And we had two people there from Daimler who had worked in the futures area there. And they introduced me to scenario methods, some trend and uh, First heard about causal layered analysis at that time that was in the 2002-2003 area. So my toolkit broadened, but I still was tasked to do forecasts. And we did a big project on forecasting GDP growth. That was back then in 2005, forecasting GDP growth up until 2020 a long time ago now. And we created a big model with trends and clusters and forecasts and all that. And the good thing about that model was I got to present that at all sorts of conferences. And there was one conference in Barcelona in 2005 where I met a guy by the name of Riel Miller uh, ah. for the first time for dinner. And also I was at the European Futurists Conference somewhere outside of Brussels in 2005. And I met Mika Alton there, who introduced me to complexity research. And that opened totally new areas <laughs> for me as an economist who was used to this plan, predict, control mode. And all of a sudden he introduced me to emergence and final cause and nonlinearities and all that. None of that I had studied in my university. Yeah. So that was a fascinating new input. But at the same time, I also got some input from people who said, most definitely focusing all the time on GDP, which as an economist you do. But there's a lot more out there how to measure quality of life than just GDP. So that was basically the same time when I got into well-being and quality of life, measurement and projects and processes. And that I found super fascinating as well. So that was my detour, or maybe intermediate focus was on, on well-being, quality of life with the OECD, European Commission, all sorts of organizations focusing on that at the time. And that actually led me to, to quit my job at Deutsche Bank and say, I want to focus more on quality of life. And I started a think tank called the Center for Societal Progress, and we ran participatory visioning processes, basically. So in terms of cool. methods, I was moving over to, to the visioning part. I also at the time finished my PhD dissertation on forecasting GDP growth to close off the earlier life. So then participatory visioning processes on quality of life with indicators, of course. I'm still a quant person. Mm -hmm. I still like numbers. I still like measurements, if it's appropriate. And we did that in Frankfurt, where I'm, where I'm based. So go through org elements and create visions, create indicators and create actions. And then I suggested the national government in Germany should do something similar which they did very nice. It was under Angela Merkel as the chancellor. That was 2013, 14 in this area. And I was an advisor to the national well-being strategy of Germany 
That was cool to see this go off. They did a wonderful hog process, but then unfortunately not so much happened afterwards. So good project, good indicators, but not really much action happening afterwards. Good process, um, not an outcome. The outcome in terms of a lot of material created, a right. thick report, yes, but beyond that, kind of tricky. So maybe at that time I was ripe to go back to the real Miller complexity futures literacy world. So 2014-15 was when the National Wellbeing Dialogue ended. And Riel invited me to all sorts of activities, which I didn't really understand initially. But then he invited me to, to join the first anticipation conference at Trento with Roberto Poli. That was 2015. And I presented our dialogue project there. And that basically got me hooked and started really onto futures literacy projects and working with Riel more closely on the book, Transforming the Future. I supported that and had a chapter in there. And then I helped design, curate the Future Literacy Design Forum. That was 2019. And the High Level Futures Literacy Summit in 2020. I was one of the curators there. And then 2021, I helped with the World Future Study Federation Conference in Berlin. So that's basically where I'm at now in this futures literacy world, coming from a forecasting and a visioning set and as an economist, as a quant person. And now these days, I think of myself actually as a designer and facilitator of futures literacy processes, I like to call them. Designer, facilitator, not a report writer, not a presenter was just asked yesterday, can you give us a talk? Can you give a presentation about this and that topic? I said, no, I don't do this anymore. That's just not this phase of my life uh, right. right now. I don't give these kinds of presentations. You've had a fascinating intellectual journey, starting from macroeconomics and then finishing up with literacy and visioning. I'm going to take you halfway and say, can I call you an ex-economist? if you're no longer practicing, but I also studied economics and I always found economics useful at a deeply sociological level of understanding how a lot of the psychology and culture of economy worked. And I found tremendous comfort in reading the works of the early economic historians. And so do you look back and give economics any value as a kind of discipline to draw knowledge and information from for our field? Or is it really a field that you say it's beyond helping anymore? It seems that you had a different economics training than I did, because what you described, sociology, psychology, philosophy, all that was not part of the curriculum that I had in Germany. And I spent three years in a PhD program in the U.S., that never appeared on the curriculum. I only learned about all these other neighboring, uh, deeper fields much, much later. I'm a big mm. fan of sociologists, German sociologists, I appreciate very much as Niklas Luhmann, for example, yeah. lots of philosophy, lots of psychology. But I, I read up on all of that way after I studied yeah. economics. So I wouldn't contribute that to economics. Was also Adam Smith, the theory of moral sentiment, and as the founding father of economics. But yes, but that was totally forgotten, at least from 
in the part of the field that I was part of when I studied economics and when I practiced this in the investment industry. Second question for you is the value of the forecast. And I often say that all decision makers need a forecast in order to make a decision because all decisions that stretch out basically saying this is a good decision means you are making a kind of informal call as to what the future will be like when the decision lands. So people wrestling with big decisions, whether they be purely commercial or or social or whatever else, seems to me the value of the forecast is still there to support decision makers. However, there's the other side of forecast, which is they're invariably not accurate. So where do you (laughs) sit on that space of decision makers need enough information to almost do a proto forecast to make a decision, as opposed to simply relying on forecast as accurate epistemological statements of what the future will be? I make use of a term that that I learned as an economist, which is it depends, what we always said. So it it really depends on what the use is and how it's it's being used of the forecast. So basically, I love using weather forecasts, of course. That makes a lot of sense for all of us. I tend to make us when I cross the street, whether it's safe to cross the street. And I totally see the possibility of forecasting stuff like the an age structure of the population or the number of six-year-olds who might enter school in six years or in five years' time. And that is super valuable information. And I get totally upset if our local government here in Frankfurt doesn't create those forecasts and doesn't make use of them. So yes, there is a good measure of usefulness in forecasts. Also in more complex situations, it's also helpful. But then I think what's really crucial is that people make explicit their forecasts. I'm basing my decision on this or that forecast. And in turn, this forecast, and I'm back to economics, what I learned actually in the first years, is the models that we use are usually based on assumptions. Aha, uh-huh. so you make a forecast, and that's based on this model. Aha, uh-huh. and that model is based on those assumptions. Okay, fair enough. You need a forecast, but now I, at least I understand where you come from, how we go, and then we can maybe argue and say, no, maybe this assumption is not. And then we're in dialogue, then we can talk about it, and then we can decide, okay, let's go with that forecast because we need a plan for our company for the next year year. We need a budget plan. So we need a forecast for what's going to happen. But at least at the same time, we can stay agile, flexible, and say, if that assumption doesn't turn out to be correct, then at least we talked about it. And I knew there are other options, other assumptions that are possible. And if the forecast doesn't turn out right, then we can still be able to act. We're not totally shocked and surprised and still be able to act. Now then, if we lay over the top of that kind of notion that the forecast is contextual, the assumptions are critical to measure and observe the viability of the assumptions is fundamental. When we lay over that vision and literacy, then what does that bring to the whole suite? That's basically what I think I'm doing these days is allow people to uncover their assumptions, their individual assumptions, 
and to also get to see the assumptions that others hold. So that's the dialogue element in still happening in all the projects that I do. We talk about the future, not because we're so sure that this is going to happen and not because we necessarily want to make it our way, make the future the way we want it, but we want to understand what our own assumptions are and what the assumptions of the others are. And we also understand the limitations of yep. those assumptions. We understand that maybe they just describe the box in which we're thinking. <laughs> and then, aha, okay, so that's the box and that's the frame through which I look at the topic or the future of the topic of work or learning or whatever the topic might be. And often enough that people are ready to say, okay, maybe that box is too narrow. Maybe the frame is too conventional, too standard. Why don't we at least play around with a different set of assumptions, a different frame, and see what happens, see whether this broadens our perspective, whether this allows us to see different things that we didn't see before. And especially if we do it together with others. We inspire yeah. each other and say, oh, let's try this, let's try that, and play, just play around with it. But we need people to invite you into this kind of work who are ready for that. But that could be exactly what you mentioned, that people are now understanding that the future is so open, and maybe they're looking for ways to, to deal with that complexity and uncertainty and open up spaces for new opportunities. Thank you, Stefan. We've had a nice appetizer. You've got a tremendous banquet of approaches. And I'm going to ask you now to drill in and explain a way of either thinking about the future or engaging with people that is core to the work that you're doing, that you just want to elaborate so what do you want to talk about? One thing is complexity, which is fundamental. The other is anticipation, a theory of anticipation. And then bringing that together is the future literacy framework, right. basically, okay. that, that we all has developed. So one thing is complexity, which I was only introduced to, Mika Altonen, in 2005. Before that, I had no idea, no understanding. I was not taught that at the university. So I don't blame people if they also haven't been taught at school or in university. It happens a lot. And I'm trying to relay that nowadays to a lot of people also in government, in large organizations, but it's really not trivial to, to understand. And I'm using a lot the Kneffen framework that Dave Snowden with a clear distinction between a complicated and a complex system. The chaotic or, or and situation. the chaotic, yes. Yeah, uh, clear or simple as well, but that's not often so relevant. For me, the main helpful distinction is between the complicated and the complex. Yep. So that is amazingly helpful, hmm. but also apparently for a lot of people, very difficult to understand. I had spent hours with some politicians trying to explain that difference. And even after three hours, it just didn't get it because yeah. it's not in their way of thinking. They're not, maybe they're not allowed to think that way. They can't, they have no experience in it. I like to not blame anyone for not seeing it, but this is just where we stand, where I stand in this. But it's a necessary condition for the way I work 
is that people understand complexity, at least the basics of it, at least that oftentimes the most relevant issues cannot be predicted and that we need to open up the discussion and take in a lot of different ideas. And coming back to politicians, they want to be often, and they're seen as the ones who know, who set the course. Hmm. So why should you open up the dialogue yeah. as a politician? That's why I admired at the time Angela Merkel for opening up into a futures dialogue and into a well-being dialogue, listening to a lot of people. But that is really unusual for politicians. So complexity in the Knefet, Dave Snowden sense, has been very influential for me, and also complexity in the Niklas Luhmann German sociologist, where he, to me, made so so clear, so visible that in complex systems, we have specialization, which is super helpful. So we focus on certain tasks, which leads to the obvious silos in our societies or the subsystems in his language, politics, economics, or business, academia, religion. Those are all subsystems that develop their own ways of doing things, their own languages, their own incentive structures, all fine. That got us to where we are as, as societies nowadays, specialization. But it also requires some communication across those systems, across those silos. And that, in my understanding, is not happening enough. Very hard to do, isn't it? This was in my education, Habermas's point around the whole notion of the hermeneutic process where you have to have a basis for communication. Are we trying to have technical accuracy? Are we trying to create exchange and freedom? Are we even reaching into the kind of spiritual eschatological question? Bass was, I think, brilliant in explaining how those silos that were necessary found it very hard to talk to one another because they often didn't have a common interest to talk about that spread across them. Yeah. No, no common language, no common interest, no common incentive structures. Yep. And I think it is for a society. And the think tank I started in 2009 is called the Center for Societal Progress. And I think that we can't make progress as societies on whatever it might be, on our education systems, on our health systems, on what, whatever the topic is, if we don't act together, get all the information in the same room. But we're not used to doing that because specialization has gone so far. And I enjoy trying to bring people together, but I also see that oftentimes it's just impossible. And on on the German education system, I tried many times, but every time I failed. Failure to bring people to have a host, basically. It requires somebody to host that kind of dialogue. I can't do this with my little think tank. That's a way too big a task. But who else would be doing it? They're all in their own little system, Mm -hmm. in their own little silos. Who is the overarching organization, person? Who has the calling power to bring all these different actors to the same room? And then, of course, The complexity of the subsystems is that they are increasing in their own complexity as they stay within their silo. And then so we have these increasingly chaotic subsystems that are not stable, that are constantly emerging, and yet here we are. We're saying we actually need 
We need these systems that are all evolving in their own particular way to somehow, I don't know how you do it, whether you, I mean, you can't control them, you, but you need them to at least communicate horizontally or influence one another or learn off one another. And that, I suppose, is a wicked problem as they, as they conceived of it in complexity policy. That's a really deep underlying issue in each of the silos. So you have it in academia, the different departments don't talk to each other. The different chairs in departments often don't talk to each other. You have it in companies there as well. The different departments don't talk to each other as much as I'd say it, it would be required. So you have it in every single subsystem. You have the, this issue. It's a general issue of are you able to communicate with people who are slightly different from how you are and i always admire the scandinavians maybe i'm too naive on that but those are the countries or the nations or the cultures that in my perception have been best able to maintain a certain level of communication and as a result, also have created what, as a quality of life researcher, I call the happy variety of capitalism, who created outcomes for the population with high well-being, high trust in each other, good economic outlook, good education levels, all sorts of different things that, that work really well. And I think, but I can prove it, that is partly or largely due to their ability to communicate well. I think Elliot Jacques's work on hierarchies and complexity would possibly say that they are small enough as countries to be able to have a dialogue across the breadth of the country. I'm not buying into the size argument here because <laughs> I see the breakdown of communication already when there is two, three, five people involved. Mm. I don't think it depends on how many millions of inhabitants you are. It depends, I think, more strongly on your history, your culture that you've developed. And if I'm talking about us here in Germany, I still think we are a very hierarchical country. There is a lot of the emperor still breathing down our neck. There's a lot of hierarchies in organization. We're also an engineering country, Germany, and engineers are over there in the complicated sphere. They don't need dialogue. They just develop their better car engine or their plane engine or what have you. They don't need that. So if you're a hierarchical engineering country, it's different than if you are a distributed, educated country like Denmark or Sweden. So that's the cultural differences. The next really influential model that I'm referring to is Robert Rosen's theory of anticipation. So that comes from biology. Many listeners know that, where he says we all have models, and we talked about that before, we all have models of our environment. We have models of ourselves, and we have models of our environment. Who are we and what is happening outside? So we observe our environment, we observe the system, we make inferences, and we build from what we see, what we sense. We make sense by building our models. So I have my model, and we just shared a model of size of a country and how that links to, to the ability to communicate. So on all sorts of things, we have our models. I have a model, you have a model. 
And often enough, we just don't talk about those models. And that's what I learned from the Robert Rosen work is that, that he came to those ideas by observing that there has been a lot of conflict across different departments in the research institute that, that he worked. And he was wondering, why are they fighting? And he claimed that it's because they have different assumptions. Yeah. They have different models and they have different assumptions. And it, they don't know the models and the assumptions of the others. And there would be a lot less fighting if we were aware of those assumptions and models. And that's basically what the futures literacy approach is about, trying to reveal those assumptions, make them visible. And I don't need to have your assumptions because your assumptions are very specific to you mm. because of the way you were taught us. Why I also like your storytelling bio question at the beginning that kind of shows where my assumptions, where my view views of the world came from, roots they have, and others have traveled different paths, which yep. is wonderful. And then we just talk with each other about those different paths. And we're not looking for a commonality, oh. almost trying to keep variety and to allow communication across difference. Absolutely. That's why my book, a little advertisement, the title of my book is Futures Open to Variety. But how do you do that? That's a, the tricky part. If people want clarity, want a sense of direction. So what do I need to do? What's next? And I say, let's keep open the variety and create a space for emergence, for new actions to, to come up. So again, it really depends on what is the context. Sometimes you have to create clarity and focus, and sometimes you create a broad spectrum of all sorts of crazy ideas. And yep. then you see what happens later. That's for some organizations this way, other organizations that way. And that's why I like and that's the, the Futures Literacy Framework that Real Miller has created. This gives the flexibility to do any of that, really depending on the context, depending on the need. Why do you want to deal with the future? Why do you want to engage? Why do you want to talk to each other? And then you pick the well, at least what you think is the most appropriate way. <laughs> you only know with hindsight whether the intervention then really worked, whether it really got you what you wanted. But at least that's where these days I come in as a designer and facilitator, having gone through a lot of those projects and processes, we hear from the partners, from the host, say, oh, we want to do this and that. And, and then I can suggest, okay, maybe you pick that method or this method and it play that way and invite these kinds of heterogeneity into the room. Or now maybe it's better to stick the small team first and explore and then go more broadly. These are all sorts of design issues that really and on the context. Thanks, Sam. So now I'm interested in the futures emerging around Stefan Bergheim. What's getting your attention? What's getting you excited? What's getting you thinking? What are the particular emerging aspects that are top of mind for you and why? It's Actually, a really difficult question for me because I'm trying to stay away these days from all sorts of issue discussions, content discussions. I work on projects that have the future of democracy, the future of trust, the future of health, the future of what have you. I'm probably not able to 
make sense of all the impulses that, that I get there and understand what's happening. I'll leave it to the others, to the experts, to those who are staying in that field to make sense of those. My role is to enable them, to put them into position or to facilitate them creating new insights for themselves, not necessarily mine. Which doesn't mean that I'm not interested in what's going on in the world, of course. War here in Europe, what a nightmare, what a disaster, and that we're so ill-prepared, that we're even ill-prepared to react to. A few people really saw it coming, with hindsight, many more, obviously. But especially in Germany, that's totally upsetting for me that we had 50% of our gas coming from one supplier. How could that happen? And then we also sold them the storage facilities. That's something that upsets me. <laughs> Whether yep. this is new signals that I'm seeing, and everyone sees them, and I see that very important. And in my terminology, a lack of future literacy that's behind that, a lack of ability to anticipate different futures. So I use it, I frame it, I turn it around into an, a, making the case for strengthening this capability across the board. Whether it works, it's a different matter. Do you think in some ways that the first year of COVID was almost another example of countries being slow to react or countries having built logistic structures, health systems that were just completely unready for something that really could be not said it was going to happen in 2020, but it could be said it was going to land sometime, the old infectious virus has been part of everyone's scenario mm. set since probably SARS. At least since SARS. Again, I don't think you can probably agree on that, but you cannot be prepared for everything out there. The costs for preparing would just be way too high if you are prepared for all contingencies. That just doesn't work. But at least you should be discussing in more broader spheres and just among a couple of futurists or logists. It needs to go broader. And then to me, the crucial issue then again is how do you react to this? Something new is happening. Are you totally shell-shocked for a few days probably? But then what do you do? Maybe we're initially at least in the chaotic sphere. At least initially it, it takes some time, but then you need to get your act together, talk to each other, and find decent solutions. I think the same thing you described is that you had the silos all trying to do their own bit of sense-making agility, but what the broader system needed was the different systems to talk to one another and start to coordinate across. So we had a health system that was working with a border system, that was working with an employment system, and they had to actually make it work horizontally rather than just try to solve it in one silo. Absolutely. And you need to practice that. You need yeah. occasions where you would just, just play around. If there's no crisis, no shock, which is fortunately most of the times the regular state of things, but you do your exercises basically to then if a different shock and the next shock will be different again, that you at least know who to talk to and at least know who's convening. Again, I'm with the, who's the host? 
for mm. this horizontal discussions, dialogue elements. Who's the convener? Some structure has to be there. Some way of preparation has to be there, but not in terms of all sorts of medicine being stockpiled. But then I grew up in the 80s. I served in the German army when there was still the Cold War going on. We had loads of stockpiles back then, and we gave up on that. And nowadays, we don't even have enough stockpiles for child's medicine against coughing. We had a mm. scarcity of this kind of medicine, taking it away too far here and keeping on our stocks. You mentioned future democracy, and what we've all been noticing is as there is this turbulence going on in the social and the economic and the foreign affairs, we are seeing pop up around Europe and also in America this kind of people who have much simpler models of the world that have much simpler explanations as to how you fix the problem. Have you got a sense of the trajectory that's going on regarding people's confidence in government or confidence in democratic government? I have a story that I think I'm seeing here, especially in the German context again, after German unification, with all the changes in Eastern Germany in particular, a lot of people there were just left on the sidelines, not looked after, couldn't cope with the new system, weren't heard, weren't involved in the new upswing that happened, especially mm. in the West. I think everyone, every human being wants to be seen and heard everywhere around the world. And my sense is that this didn't happen enough. Well, Germany better than the US, but maybe there as well. If people aren't heard by the standard system, there will be others who make them feel heard will be populists who say, I hear your pain. I know what it's about it. I have the solution. And then people then fall for those simple answers, these simple models. And then there is some, probably some powerful interests who leverage that, who want to benefit from that upheaval. And it could be media in some countries. It could be individual politicians. Eastern, the far-right politicians, many of them are were born in the west of Germany. They moved over there, probably controversial statement, but to benefit from the unrest that was brewing there which is disgusting, but it's an explanation of what happened, sadly, and maybe not just in Germany, but also in, in other countries. It is, I'm not going to say it's not a weakness, but a, certainly a property of democratic government is you only need 51%. You probably need even less than 51%. If you haven't done a good job in managing the majority of people's expectations of a good future, then if you only are pitching your message to an elite minority, then all democracy leaves itself open to what you described. Absolutely. And I'd say even 10 or 20% of upset people can be very difficult in the long term. And again, my solution, and obviously is, and I've worked with lots of governments at the local yep. and national level in Germany, my solution is, well, let Go out there and talk to people, listen to them in particular, not do your one-way message sending thing as you always do, but listen to them. But then I found out that while a lot of structures are not able to set that up at the local level, I said, what do you th say? 
we should go out to the rural areas of our of our country. No way. We've never done that. Uh, plus, there, there's a structural inhibitant here that if you're in the bureaucracy, basically you take the orders from the politicians, which is right. the way it's done in a democracy, which is totally fine. So your job is not to go out and talk to the ordinary citizens out there because that's not the way we're structured. But that's, on the one hand, I see that this is the way it's done, but then I also yeah. think that this is wrong. We need the bureaucrats to be able to know and listen what the ordinary citizens are saying. And that we need ordinary citizens, whatever that is, to have the feeling that they are understood and heard by those in power. Otherwise, this is not going to work. But telling them this is difficult. And for a lot of politicians, we had politicians involved in, this, in these dialogue projects who just didn't want to do it this way. They just went to the dialogue events and gave a speech. But in this one occasion that, that I have in mind, there was a setup where there were really people that were different from that politician. That was a unique opportunity. It was so well set up with young people. Mm. And there was such a great opportunity for that politician, uh, his team, to listen to a diversity of perspectives. But they didn't take that opportunity. And also the students, they love listening to the politician. They had never heard a politician speak before. They enjoyed it, which is also understandable. It's something that we need to practice at all sorts of levels. And then we have another anecdote in Germany. People here love debates. There's debating societies, debating courses and all that. And debate comes from the French debattre. So you hit each other with your arguments. That's not the dialogue that I have in mind. That's not nurturing the mutual understanding of your position and my position. That's not what I have in mind. So I'm Oftentimes I work really hard and long to say, no, if you want to understand, if you want to listen to people, don't call it a debate. The turn that's been creeping into some of the things I've been reading is you walk alongside people. You actually talk as you walk shoulder to shoulder rather than facing one another. It's actually a journey you're both on. From all the dialogue literature, dialogue is a conversation with the center rather than sides. It's a quote I love very much. So we have a shared interest, a shared topic, and it's about that issue. For example, we want to improve education in Germany. Isn't that a worthwhile center topic? And then we keep yes. fighting yeah. along so many different lines. Right. You've mentioned a couple of times a phrase that I think is interesting. I'd just like you to unpack it, this notion of the host, the notion of the person who holds the conversation. And I'm going to assume you mean that person isn't necessarily invested in part of the conversation. That person, the host's job is to ensure that there is a circle, there is a centre. Is that right? There is three different roles that I like to distinguish. One is the participants, of course. They add their content, their perspectives, their images of the future. Then there is the facilitator who holds the talk, who holds the container, who holds the space, who designs the event beforehand, and then holds space and gives people an opportunity to contribute. The host is the person who brings all that, or the organization who brings all that together, who offers a room, 
who has the calling power to bring participants into the room, who knows that uh, maybe a facilitated uh, process is better than if I, as the host, give my perspective and then have a Q&A session from participants afterwards. So a person who, or an organization who understands the value of these participatory processes. Right. So three different roles, host, facilitator, and participants from my perspective. How does Stefan explain to people what Stefan does when they don't necessarily understand what it is that Stefan does? We have a case right now where we're trying to work with uh, teenagers on the future. So we had to think really hard. How do we communicate that? How do we bring them in the room? How does it feel attractive for them to join? And usually when I have the opportunity to talk to someone directly, I ask them or tell them, you deal with the future all the time don't you? And often start mm. events with that, like the weather forecast issue or the crossing the street issue or the planning for your next holiday vacation or what you want to study. So there is always the future involved. Sometimes you don't need an expert to do that when you cross the streets, it's automatic. But sometimes maybe it's a good idea to do it in a bit more structured way, a bit more conscious way with additional methods that you don't learn in school. And that's basically where I come in, I would explain to them. That's what I have. I have a big toolbox of different methods. And depending on what your issue is of the future, I'm not going to help you plan your next holiday. I do that for my own family. But if it's something bigger, larger, I can support you with different tools and methods. That's basically simple. It's a universal thing, dealing with the future. And there are different ways of doing different methods that can be used. I just have some methods that might be helpful. Do you occasionally step into the host space? I did when I was focusing on the quality of life topic. When we were looking in Frankfurt, I wanted to do this, I call it a quality of life process from dialogue, visions, indicators, and actions. And I was looking for a host and I couldn't find one. So I decided let's us be the host and invite and also be partly the facilitators, but we had others who were then doing the facilitation work. So I basically was my organization, Center for Societal Progress. We were the hosting organization because of a lack of someone else doing it, but we had limited resources to do. It was a, a great exercise, great practice. I learned a lot and we invite a lot of people I think we created a lot of insights that carried through even 10 years later. They're still, I think, relevant. But I'm not doing this anymore. Now I'm always looking for someone else to host and to do the invitation, except for some little things. But I'm hosting something on the Futures Literacy community in Germany. But that's probably not what you mean. So we're offering trainings, we're offering open futures literacy laboratories, and I'm offering network meetings where everyone who's interested in this kind of work comes together. I'm just wondering whether we lack hosts to have these conversations about the things that we need to bring back in the old days 
I'm older than you. We used to have a thing called a search conference. I think you probably, you, you might've heard of search conferences. And that was the simple idea of let's try to put the system in the room. And they were massive. Search conferences were over 100, 150 people. And there Super. were multiple facilitators. And there was an organization that hosted the conference that actually said the conference is brought together to put the system in the room. And it just strikes me that when you now introduce hosting, I'm sitting here going, if we look around in 2023, who are the people who would host these conversations? And I, it's not apparent to me who these organisations or groups are that could operate as hosts. I totally love the method of future search. There, I have a chapter in my book on futures open to variety, which is exactly this. And then I tell people, if, especially in a controversial situation, that's a good method to be used. But I haven't really found hosts for that in yeah. Germany as well. So that's the underlying issue. So hosts that I tend to work with, sometimes it's companies. Ideally, it's yep. the CEO. It needs to be high up. So I'm also a big fan of, of Frederick Laloux on reinventing organizations. I don't know whether this is something that's visible. And he said, you can't have a change in an organization longer term if it's not supported from high up, hmm. which is very sad on the one hand, because I think I'd like to go away from the hierarchical structures, but that's the fact right now. We need the support from high up. So ideally in organizations, in companies, we need one way or another, we need the support from the CEO or at least head of the, the department. The understanding needs to be there. We want to do this. So that's a typical host. Sometimes we have universities or professors, departments in universities who also understand that there is an issue. But so far, it's a challenge for them to really generate that calling power, especially mm -hmm. into the general public. As a university, you're an elite academic organization and don't have maybe the reach into normal citizens, but you can learn it. So then we discovered that, aha, uh -huh, so it didn't work for citizens to show up. You invited, but they didn't come. What can you do? Maybe you go there. You don't invite into your rooms, but you go into their rooms. So there's ways of doing it. And you're still basically the over, overarching host, but then you have little hosts and you go to them. So there are different possibilities out there. And again, yes, I see a big need for more hosts. So Stefan, I noticed on the list, sir, for the Federation that you posted some questions that came up in the Berlin Federation Conference. Why did you post those questions to the listserv of the Federation? Now, what were you trying to do? First of all, I'm a very big fan of questions. In the Future Citizen Laboratories, there's a phase where we invite people to ask new questions. And I thought at the end of the conference in Berlin, it was time for people to reflect on the overall conference, what happened and what conclusions they draw from that. And with my preference for questions, formulate them as questions. So that was my invitation at the end of the conference. And we distributed moderator cards and pens. So everyone had a chance to write down their questions. And what I did afterwards and what I sent out on the listserv and distributed now with some delay to everyone was basically the harvest of all those questions. So it's initially not my questions, but it's the questions that the participants of the conference asked. 
and I just sorted them a little bit from my subjective perspective on what I thought are, are similar questions. And I found them super helpful. I added some deeper questions where I thought maybe there's a question behind the question, which is also helpful. And one of the overarching questions that, that I think I saw relates back to the hosting issue that we mm. discussed. And that relates to the issue of what is the role of the Federation or of other organizations? Is it a host? Is that the organization? Is that the people who bring together the different perspectives for sharing, for conversations with the center rather than with sides, for all those things, and apply futures methods to themselves, basically, to the own organization. Do a future search, for example, for a futures community. Do a visioning process. Do a reframing. Whatever you want to do, talk with each other. And the federation could be host. The listserv could be a place where some of the smaller conversations could be held. The next conference in Paris, the 50-year anniversary conference, could be an occasion where this hosting, conversation, dialogue, element could play a big role. I tried to introduce that already at Berlin conference, but I'm hoping and dreaming that more of that can happen going forward. It's still only fairly early times from when you posted the question, but what's your sense of how it was received by the Federation members? There were some members who responded, as I was hoping, indicated that there are some action items in there, which is usually also in the sequence of how I work from the question there is often a quest that is developing. So somebody grabs a question or a set of questions, okay, I want to do something with those. Solution of, of younger people or definition of terminology, or there's a long list of possibilities in there. But in an emerging complex system, I just hope to see some people then just do it. They don't need my permission at all to do something with those questions. Just grab it and go with it wherever the energy is and do something with it. From FuturePod's perspective, we talk across the community. We have a lot of Federation members like yourself and me. We've got the Association of Professional Futurists, who is another community and then there are all the people that sit in the futures ecosystem <laughs> who don't belong to either but still are in the ecosystem given technology and given all experiences of two years with COVID, you would imagine something was possible that doesn't require us all to spend carbon to come together to have a conversation absolutely you can have small focused conversations of an hour or two hours. You can have large conferences in that spirit that are online. But again, it requires someone to host it, someone to invite into it, someone to design it. So why are we meeting? What's the purpose? What's the why behind our coming together? What do we want to create that carries on after this conversation? I think every futurist asks these kinds of questions when we engage partners with clients. Maybe we can apply some of those to, to ourselves and host online conversations, host conversations on a listserv, host conversations on site, host conversations just among members, among a wider community, or host conversations just among academic futurists. 
just among corporate futurists. There are all sorts of possibilities. Mm. Just grab them. There's uh, so much more out there, yes. I'm going to wrap it there, Stefan. It's been terrific to meet you and, and talk to a fellow ex-economist who's, who's found the life is much richer than macroeconomics ever was. But thank you personally and on behalf of the FuturePod community. Thanks for taking some time out to have a chat. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure, joy and honour to be here. My guest today was Stefan Bergheim. You'll find more details about the things that Stefan spoke about in the show notes on the website. I hope after hearing Stefan, you feel encouraged to design and support your own futures dialogues from the centre rather than the edges. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you'd like to support the pod, then please check out our Patreon link on our website. I'm Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.